0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 199 of the iFreak Show. This is James Zuber from Sharp 5 Software, and today we have a guest who's returning. This is the second, possibly third time you've been on the show. Uh, please welcome- it's the Second to my recollection. Second, yep. okay. Second time. Old friend of the show, uh, JP Simard. Yeah, thanks, James. I'm happy to be on. Cool. Can you tell us a little bit about
1: yourself? Sure. Um, so I've been with a company called Realm for the last uh, close to three years now. Uh, and if I recall correctly, when I was coming onto the show, um, Realm was still pretty fairly new. Uh, and so I ended up kind of explaining what it is that we were trying to do. Um, and here we are, episode 199. And I think most of your listeners have probably at least heard of Realm by, by now. Um, and uh, yeah, things have changed quite a bit in the last few years. But... Um, you know, we've we've kind of grown the product. I lead the Apple platforms development team here. Um, so we've been, you know, busy working on the Objective C, the Swift side of things, adding some real-time synchronization sauce to the product, uh, and um adding a server-side component. So it's been uh, it's been a fun few years uh doing this. And um, you know, occasionally Realm even uh, lets me work on some cool stuff like uh, some some Swift tooling like uh, Jazzy, which is a documentation generator for Swift and Objective-C, and SwiftLint, which is a linter for Swift. Um, so I get a sense that we'll probably end up talking a bit about kind of the underpinnings of those uh, later in the show, because
0: uh, you want to talk about SourceKit. That's true. So, yeah, we brought you on to talk about SourceKit. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so...
2: Have you ever felt like you're falling behind? Or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up? Then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date. The answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in Ruby. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you got Ruby Rogues all day? Well, you can, kind of. We moved our Ruby Rogues Parley forum to Slack. That means you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using. Plus. We've set up a Keeping Current channel that pulls stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about. And coming soon, we'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. That's rubyrogues.com slash P-A-R-L-E-Y. Yeah,
0: we brought you on to talk about SourceKit. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um... SourceKit is what libclang
1: was to Clang uh, and the C language compilers um, for Swift. So it's basically a library and a service that you can use to uh, integrate into the compiler, build your own tooling, kind of get uh, information out of structured source code, and uh, and act on that. So um, it's kind of this framework that allows you to build IDE-like features. And in fact, that's what Apple uses to build Xcode. Uh, Things like code completion, syntax highlighting. um, You have code folding, uh, documentation generation, symbol resolution, um, all sorts of things like that.
0: Very cool. So how did you get involved with hacking on Sourcekit? That's a good question. Um, I think
1: a lot of engineers in, in our industry, we we kind of like uh, the, the forbidden fruit. If there's something that Apple has that is kind of cool and kind of has promise, but is closed source, it's guaranteed that someone at some point is going to want to poke holes at it and try to see if there are ways that they can understand how it works a little better and maybe use it to their advantage. And so when Xcode 6 came out, uh, there were a handful of command line tools that were uh, that were bundled with the Xcode 6 betas uh, and we're talking you know summer 2014 here when Swift was announced um, and so there was there was some Swift support in Xcode right um, and so what I wanted to do was to build a documentation generator for Swift right it's a new language lots of um, lots of opportunities to build tooling there especially because because apple itself you know they they hadn't been working on apple for that long there weren't that many people at apple who had known about it um, until it was announced and so i wanted to build this documentation generator there were a handful of command line tools managed to kind of play around with those and and get some sort of basic api documentation metadata, if you will, out of those command line tools. And then something like beta four comes along of Xcode six and they remove the tools. Cause guess what? People found ways to exploit them, um, myself included, and they weren't quite ready for prime time. And so at that point I uh, was just about ready to give up um, because Apple had removed the one thing that I was using so I could generate API docs. Um, until I uh, started poking around a bit and realized that there was this XPC service that Xcode was communicating with, Um, and that was SourceKit, Uh, this XPC daemon that was running in the background, uh, crashing (laughs) all the time um, because guess what? The compiler was pretty young. It was pretty immature. Um, And so found out that SourceKit was there. It was a closed source uh, framework, this XPC service, found a few ways to coerce Xcode to let me know what kind of messages it was sending to it, Tried to figure out this, the same way that I could send messages to it, and wound up being able to basically replicate all the communication back and forth that Xcode was doing with, with SourceKit, uh, basically by dynamically linking the framework, and, um, and uh, DL opening some uh, some of the functions that were being used to um, to send messages, um, so that was kind of how I got started with it. And in a nutshell, wanted to you know very tangibly build a product, build the documentation generator, and uh, basically tried to find whichever way I could to hook
0: into official tooling to be able to do it. So very cool. So SourceKit is running as an in- as a XPC? Yeah. Basically, um, what happens when- should explain. When...
1: You should probably explain what XPC is. Absolutely. That's a great point. Um, so XPC is an interprocess communication mechanism on Darwin platforms. Um, it's built on top of a few like primitive Darwin technologies like mock ports and um named pipes and, uh, uses similar mechanisms as, uh, Darwin notifications. Um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of, it's built on top of primitives that have been in Darwin. So Mac OS, OS 10, um, and iOS for, for quite some time, but, um, uh, XPC itself is probably just about 10 years old or so, you know, it's, it's, it's really, um, it's after the, um, the Mac OS Mac Mac OS X era, for sure, um, and it's one of those uh, really powerful tools that actually isn't available um, to third parties, so to to kind of outside of Apple on iOS and uh, and on TVOS and WatchOS, um, it still exists, and Apple itself will happily use it for its own needs, but uh, but they don't expose it on those platforms. So it's this inter-process communication mechanism. Um, and the way you use that with uh, actually the way the reason why it's useful for SourceKit is that if any of you recall writing any Swift in 2014, 2015, really until recently, it was extremely common to see SourceKit failed messages in your in your IDE. Um, and as annoying as those were, they – Weren't as annoying as the whole IDE coming crashing down every time that message would appear, which would have been the case if Xcode had kept its previous architecture of in-process um, kind of code manipulation and, and code operations the way it's always done with
0: with Clang. Does that make any sense? Um, sure. So XPC is just a way for different processes to communicate with each other. It's available right. on OSX, OS X, OS 10, but you're not going to get it at iOS. That's right. All right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so, you know, it's a really good thing that Apple ended up using that uh, for SourceKit because it meant that early on when parts of the compiler were really unstable, at least people could retain some of their IDE uh, functionality, or at least, you know, if they were working on one Objective-C project in one window and a Swift project in another, um, you know, they could continue working on the Objective-C side. That's true. It was more
0: of a warning that okay, you need to restart Xcode now versus just taking it right down for you.
1: Yeah, and over time, you know, they built in mechanisms to automatically restart the, uh, the XPC service um, to kind of clean up state and hopefully you know, <laughs> reboot the system, so to speak, uh, for you without you having to close down Xcode and reopen it, uh, which definitely helped. Um, and I, I will say, you know, at this point, SourceKit uh, is, is really super stable. Um, you know, I've uh, I've done quite a bit of, of stress testing on it over the years, um, to the point where uh, the the people on the sourcekit team were kind of looking at what I was doing to do uh, documentation generation as a way to do their own stress tests, um, just because of the very naive implementation and the way that it works to just like tries to get documentation information for every single character in a file, you know. Um, so uh, so over the years, it's really stabilized. And um, and the last thing I'll say about that is that it was never really so much source kit that was unstable. It was the Swift compiler. It was just happened to be exposed via source kit.
0: So what got you interested in creating source code generation?
1: Right, well, that kind of ties back to, to Realm. Um, so, we were planning so i joined realm in in april of 2014 and uh uh, we started working really doubling down on on the objective c um interface for it at that point which was slated to be our first product um and so we were aiming for like around a WWDC launch uh, so WWDC 2014 and just as we were Uh, You know, prepping for a launch that week, you know, all the developers are in San Francisco, we're based in San Francisco, people uh, are in the mindset of learning new things, it would have been a great time to launch launch a product like that. Um, We, of course, wanted to wait until after uh, the keynote, and the keynote drops, and Apple has released a whole new programming language. And we just look at each other and we're like, there's no way that we can release an Objective-C product at this point when Apple is clearly showing that Swift is the future. And so uh, we hunker down for about a week and a half, make sure that you can use our product from Swift, and uh, and then launch it something like the week or a week and a half after WWDC. But... Um, all that to say that we knew that Swift was going to be the future of Apple development, and with a product like ours, which is an SDK, which needs in-depth API documentation, there's no way that we would have released a product without uh, thoroughly documenting it, and um, and so that's where the need to build a documentation generator came in. And I had been wanting to do this for for a while, even just for Objective C. I thought, um, you know, the the leading tool that had been existing was called Apple Doc at that point, and uh, for, for Objective-C API documentation generation. It's a very powerful tool, but the way it's built means that it's um, it, it, for the last few years, even at that point, it had been kind of stuck in a very difficult-to-maintain state uh, because it wasn't hooking into the official uh, Clang tooling. It was doing its own kind of regular expression parsing of the Objective-C language, meaning that you kind of had these edge cases um, where uh, it would parse things that weren't valid Objective-C, or it wouldn't parse things that were valid Objective-C, especially as Objective-C kept evolving, um, and certainly meant that, uh, that we couldn't just add Swift support to Apple Doc because the language was so much in flux. And so that's, that's the motivation for building a documentation generator. It's been something that I was considering personally for a while, and now we had this great opportunity to, uh, to really do something um, that the whole community could use and that we could use as a company. Uh, so, so that was the motivation. So
0: if I'm a Realm user, what does this documentation do for me? Well, you go to realm.io slash docs, and then uh, all of our public interfaces, and really, if
1: you go to cocodocs.org as well, they also use Jazzy, um, this this documentation generator, and all of the Swift pods uh, use it as well. So what you see is the entire public interface, and this includes kind of difficult to parse things, such as like if you have um, a, a public struct. Uh, within a public class, within a public struct, um, with some internal, some private, some file private members, uh, because Jazzy hooks into SourceKit, um, which has the official uh, Swift parser, you know that what you're getting is pretty legitimate. And um, the, the false positives are going to be extremely rare. So as a user, you go to realm.io slash docs, and you see the entire public interface. You see all the function calls, all the types, all of the constants that you can use. Uh, there's some sample code that's kind of embedded in documentation comments. And one of the main goals behind building this was to support the same documentation format as Xcode does so that if your project is well-documented even just within Xcode you're not even using any third party tools at this point that uh, jazzy documentation would just work out of the box and render the same way. So that meant uh, early on that we were using restructured text for the documentation format. Um, Cause that's what Xcode was using. And then with Swift two um, Apple said, okay, well, we're throwing out restructured text. Uh, we're going with Markdown now. And so Jazzy just followed and, and was able to do that as well. So um,
0: that's, that's kind of, that was a lot of the motivation and, and driving principles. Okay, very cool. So, Jazzy allows you to take your source code and view it on a web page as HTML. That's right. Versus taking a PNG. I'm not sure how you would do it otherwise. But uh yeah well you know it's HTML
1: uh it also generates dash doc sets so if you're familiar with the dash documentation browser it's a Mac app an iOS app or it used to be uh an iOS app on the app store now now open source um you can also look at jazzy doc sets on on that
0: Okay so if I want to get my code to display as HTML using SourceKit how do you how do you get started Right well um you're not going to get the HTML output of source kit. What
1: you can do with source kit is, you pass in all of the uh, compiler arguments so that SourceKit, i.e. the Swift compiler, then knows how to resolve all of the dependencies that you have, whether that's foundation, UI kit, AF networking, realm um, whatever your dependencies are it knows how to resolve those so that if you have any of that in your api um, then then it knows what symbol you're referring to keep it, keeping in mind that um, swift is a much more complex language than objective c was and objective c only ever have a single level of nesting you know you have a class with properties you're, you're not going to get a class within a class within a class within a struct, etc right um and you can have you, you can have overloaded names as well so the fact that uh, that you need to pass in all of your dependencies to the swift compiler means that it'll know when you're referring to s- string say well is that uh swift.string is that um, my third party framework.string uh is it an enum member um, is it a, a separate class etc um, so you pass in all the compiler arguments to to SourceKit. You pass in um, all of the files that you're compiling as part of your current module, and then to get documentation information after that, what you do is you send it um, a cursor info request. So SourceKit has all of these uh, request types. Uh, so these are things like um, code completion, syntax highlighting, etc. There's also cursor info, which is um, the same command as xcode sends when you option click on a symbol in your ide Uh, so that's what will pop up the documentation some related symbols um, and and a link to the definition so you send the surfer cursor info request to SourceKit, and in return it'll get you uh, some some parsed um, documentation information Uh, and so once you have that you can make these cursor info requests for every part of the file or files that you're interested in generating documentation for. So the way Jazzy does this, and the way Sourcekitten does this, which is a wrapper around Sourcekitten, is that it will kind of intelligently partition parts of your files into areas that it knows for sure aren't part of the API. So like comments and, Know, closures and and things that are f- for sure not part of the public API um, so it it won't try to access those and then for every other token that could potentially be part of a public interface it'll generate this cursor info it'll keep all the results in this massive massive data structure and then by the end we can kind of deduplicate and um, you'll have all of the cursor info requests for all of the relevant parts of your files at which point you have uh, kind of a machine readable um, all the metadata for your documentation Uh, you still don't have html yet right you just have um, say this uh, json blob of all of the relevant bits to power your documentation we pass that to jazzy and then jazzy parses that and generates html with the themes the css the JavaScript, everything it needs, into a static site.
0: Okay, what does that JSON file look like? What types of data is is in there? Right, so you have, um, it's basically
1: a nested structure, uh, and it's arbitrarily nested because, again, Swift lets you have uh, an almost infinite number of nested interfaces. Um, And each one of those levels has uh, kind of a name a type you know is this a is this a function a class a struct an enum um, etc is it a constant there's about 30 or 40 different kinds that it could be uh, it has a name it has a unique symbol resolution identifier so that's USR um, and that helps that's basically the the mangled representation of that symbol uh, so for example if you have um, your own string type in, in your uh, in your module, then the mangling will help distinguish that from Swift.string, right? So it has that, It has um, uh, its documentation comment with all the comment metadata stripped out. So it's really just the the plain markdown basically. Um, and then very importantly, each one of these substructures, if it has nested elements that are part of the interface that's being documented, it'll have a substructure. And then you kind of repeat that, right? So you can picture this as this uh, as this tree that represents kind of your AST as far as the documentation your interface is concerned.
0: Okay, so if I'm imagining you developing this, you've got a bunch of script files that put all the info in there and you get out a JSON file or JSON data, which you put to a file, that seems difficult to work with. Are there are there ways to make it easier?
1: Yeah, um, there's a type safe API if you use uh, SourceKit and framework. Um, that uh, if you're building tooling in Swift, which a lot of people have have done actually, have built on top of SourceKit and framework. Um, Swiftlint is one example, but also a bunch of uh, IDE like tools for um, Vim or for uh, Atom, Sublime Text, et cetera, uh, can then use the type-safe API for SourceKitten. Um, and at that point, you can, uh, you can much more easily manipulate that. Um, the only reason why Jazzy ends up using the JSON output is that we use SourceKitten as a backend to Jazzy, which is itself is written in Ruby um, because Ruby has, great sets of libraries for doing things like uh, markdown generation or at least it, it did much more than Swift did three years ago when or two and a half years ago when Jazzy was written. Uh, so that's why we kind of go through this uh, type safe, then type unsafe, then type safe representation again.
0: Okay, very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is developing with Sourcekitten like?
2: Well, you
1: basically just.
2: Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom. And all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts. And all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com.
0: So what is developing with Sourcekitten like?
1: Um, Well, you basically just include Sourcekitten framework as a framework via Carthage, CocoaPods. whatever you like Swift package manager uh, into your Swift app if you want to build tooling around Swift uh, so if you want to build a linter a documentation generator a, um, a static analyzer even if you want to build you could build uh, code generation which um, a tool named sorcery does it uses source getting framework for that uh, so you just include it as a framework and then you um, you have a few options the source and framework kind of wraps all of the xpc calls to source get d in uh, some some type safe constructs such as um, you know a code completion uh, struct or uh, a swift doc struct or um, a syntax map struct so you basically pass in either a swift file or uh, a swift string to that, and SourceKit and Framework will take care of doing all of the parsing and communicating to get you just the output in in kind of a type-safe way. So from there, um, say you wanted to build um, just a short Swift app in your project that could uh, do some code generation, and it would find all of the classes that you have, and for all of those classes that conform to some protocol, it would add uh, a custom description to it, or it would add JSON serialization, deserialization conformance to it. Um, you could do that by just importing SourceKit and framework and manipulating what you get out of that to then just write to a file with whatever generated Swift you wanted. Um, the the possibilities are really endless. You know, once you have access to that high fidelity uh, source representation of your app, um, you can do a lot of things, whether it's automation or uh, analysis. Um, there there's
0: really lots of possibilities out there. So when you talk about code generation, like this isn't something that we've really dealt a lot with in the mobile world. I know when I was doing .NET stuff maybe 10 years ago. That was all the rage. And people would just generate tons of code um, You know, before Rails-type stuff became ubiquitous frameworks. People tried to do similar things by just generating code. But like, what types of things are people using code generation for now? Uh,
1: well, what, what really comes to mind is this sorcery project from uh, Christoph Zaboki. Um, and this is a project that came out just a few months ago, maybe three months ago. Um, and if, if you look at, uh, this will be included in the show notes, if you look at the examples that they have, say that uh, you have lots of structs in your app and you want to, uh, you, you just want to provide um, a default equatable implementation for all of these structs, right? So you'll you can use... You can use Sorcery, which uses SourceKit, and which uses SourceKit to detect, say, all of the all of these structs that have Equatable public members, and um, generate
0: automatically this equality function for them. So or same thing goes with Hashable. Equatable mm-hmm. for structs. This is you know you can't really compare a struct unless you create a, a, pro- a protocol for it, it the Equatable, where you're actually going through and manually comparing this field to that field. Uh, with two different right. different ones, and, you know, people start doing it. And I'm going to aside, don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> don't do this. You're using structs wrong. Uh, but anyway, you, um, people still do it, but you get to a point where if you add a new field, all of a sudden it's not covered in your equatable. So even though the structs aren't equal, um, they're coming out as equal, and that's a hard thing to test for, get to write test for it. So if you can just have right. an equatable... Generated for you automatically. You run a little command line thing, and it does it for you. And boom, that's something you can use sorcery for.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because these these are things that the compiler won't tell you if uh, if you added a field and you forgot to include it in your equatable check. Uh, same thing goes for for a hash value, right? If you wanted to um, hash all of the public members of of this director or or type, um, it's very easy to forget to kind of add things in both places uh, if you wanted to generate um, kind of a type erased wrapper around a protocol uh, it's very easy to forget to add a member to that protocol you know so these are all things where uh, code generation can really save the day and uh, and really prevent bugs in your app um, because the compiler won't be able to help you there anytime you, you find yourself writing um, a lot of code in in repetition uh, Code generation
0: might be a good tool to solve that. I know one thing I I've been wanting to do with code generation is creating like stub and mock classes for Swift. I mean, all the frameworks are I'm not that impressed with. I mean, I just end up coding them by hand, which is repetitive and you know something that could definitely be done with code generation. Absolutely. Uh,
1: Sorcery has uh, one such example, in it's readme as well. Uh, It has an example for that, for uh, generating lenses for all of your structs, um, generating a Linux main.swift for all of your tests in case you're writing something that uh, should be cross-platform and also work on Linux. Um, So it can really help kind of fill in some of the gaps that uh, the, the Swift language doesn't let you easily do. Uh, even if you wanted to do some reflection-like stuff, like, say, have an all-values member to your enum, um, this is something that, that you can't get out of Swift, uh, but you can definitely generate it yourself.
0: Okay, very cool. So how would how would you simulate reflection using SourceKitten?
1: Uh, well, you can... Once you have this uh, this tree of all your declarations, you can then filter for the things that you actually care about, so say enums in this case. Uh, and you do this recursively, because you'd probably want to apply this even for nested enums, uh, so enums within structs, et cetera. Um, so once you, you have those, you have their names, you have all of their members, um, you know whether or not they have associated types, you know if uh, those associated types are equatable, um, so you have all of the required inputs in, in a structured format to know um, how you want to deal with that. Uh, so in this case, you would um, you you would just construct a string that would be valid Swift by having an extension to each of your enums that adds, um, say, an all values member. Uh, and really just returns an array of all the members that you've you've kept in this structure. Um, so there, there are really quite a few possibilities.
0: Okay, very cool. We should probably add or make a quick explanation of what Reflection is. I can embarrass myself, but you want to go ahead? No, I, go for it, Jay. Okay. So Reflection, it's technically used in like Java, C Sharp, where you have a compiled language, but you want to do some more dynamic-y type things with it? and you can get access to like lower level, I can't remember what they call it in C-sharp, but like the Java, Java virtual machine where you can do programming on that and do things that you just wouldn't be able to do with a statically compiled language, uh, which Swift is. Uh, you don't have any access to that type of stuff um, if you're doing Swift, but if you can look at the stuff under the hood using reflection, then you can do more type of things and I'm, I'm I'm failing to come up with an example, a good example that we could use reflection for in Swift, but do you have anything? <laughs> well, <laughs>
1: the Realm is is generally a good example, I'd say. Um, so one example is if you can, at runtime, detect all of the classes and properties um, that you have in the runtime table, uh, the way Realm uses this is that you define um, model subclasses, so you, su- you subclass Realm Swift dot object, and you create your person, company, dog, classes, all of, all of these models. You add properties to them, like a name, age, et cetera. Um, and thanks to runtime reflection, um, the Realm library can then introspect all of the model classes that you've created and map that to database tables so that it knows um, you know how you intend to, to use them. Uh, Core data works in a very similar way as well. Um, so does you know, all sorts of other kind of runtime reflection uh if you are familiar with objective c's runtime.h um, that's a very powerful uh part of metaprogramming in objective c that you can use for uh, a lot of the same things that you can use code gen for except you you do them at runtime not at compile time um so if you've ever used uh any automatic kind of JSON serialization deserialization um, tools, uh, then then they probably use that in Objective C. Um, so those are some ways that you can use metaprogramming to improve your your efficiency or reduce the verbosity of, of your code.
0: Okay. Now we're talking about you know source kit source kitten where I'm thinking of just you know, compile time stuff and you're talking more detecting of what's happening during runtime. Um, how do you how do you connect those dots? Uh,
1: well, you can do a lot of the same things much like um, if you compare a static a statically compiled language or dynamic language, uh, you know, you compile Swift to Ruby Um which which are, are quite different really in terms of of the way they work or, or swift to java as well where you know Java's running in a virtual machine and um, you know not not generally compiled ahead of time in the same way um and and swift to objective c as well when you consider pure swift uh with no use of the dynamic keyword, uh typically the compiler would be very aggressive in um, in removing any of the dynamic dispatch, th- these calls that can change depending on certain contexts and situation at runtime. Um, so what uh code generation does allows you to do a lot of the same things that dynamic metaprogramming lets you do. So again, this is, this is things like, uh, reflecting the types that you have defined, So instead of asking the runtime table as your app is running, show me all of the classes that conform to X protocol, or show me all of its properties. You can do that by parsing the source code and generating code at compile time um, to do that for you, which is very nice in a lot of ways, um, where you know that you're still dealing with something that's type safe at that point you can inspect the code um, that's being generated. So it's a lot more uh, tangible and easy to understand because really it's just saving you from having written the exact same code. There's no real magic involved. Whereas with runtime introspection, runtime metaprogramming, um, you know, you really have to understand how the runtime works uh, and and to not shoot yourself in the foot because usually you'll be dealing with Weekly typed items, uh, you don't know what a property um, is returning. You know, in a in a type safe way, you really have to have to be careful when you're doing that. Uh, so there are two sides of the same coin: um, this uh, code gen and uh, and runtime reflection. Uh, there's a few things that you can only do really at runtime, especially if uh, you're writing code that will end up being used as a library. Um, you don't necessarily have control as a library author over um, you know, whether or not your end user is going to be doing the right code gen things. So you have to rely on on the runtime to really know. So, for example, Realm wouldn't really be able to uh, remove all of the runtime magic that it has and strictly rely on code gen uh, because we don't write our users' apps. Our users do, Right.
0: Uh, very cool, so if I'm trying to understand what's happening with, by the hood, say Realm, I have a model class that's a, a person, like, does it have to have any protocol or be a subclass of anything?
1: Yeah, in, in Realm in Realm Swift specifically, you, you subclass the object class, um, which serves quite a few purposes. Um, one is basically as a marker in the runtime table for us to be able to say, okay, Objective-C runtime, what are all the classes that inherit from object? Uh, These are model classes. Um, So there's that. Uh, The fact that it's a class and a subclass also allows us to Uh, at runtime, replace some of the accessors for properties. Um, So things like the property getter and setter, uh, we'll replace those at runtime. So instead of writing both to the instance variable, that backs a property, the the IVAR, and to the database, we'll just write and read from the database. So we'll gain quite a bit of performance doing that. Uh, These are things that you wouldn't really be able to do if you just um, uh, conformed to a protocol. Um, but these are things that that aren't very, uh, th- that require the Objective-C runtime to, to be able to function because uh, all of, or quite a few of Swift's dynamic features, including the dynamic keyword, uh, rely on the Objective-C runtime, which is still to this day a big difference between writing Swift code for Linux, say, and Apple platforms. Um, where there's quite a bit of the language that you can't tap into if you're writing Swift on Linux because it relies on, on everything that, that comes with Darwin, whether that's lib-dispatch or uh, the Objective-C runtime.
0: Well, very cool, um, so this has been a lot of good stuff. Anything that else we should cover before we get to the picks?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, you know, we, we didn't talk so much about uh, about SourceKit itself and how it's been evolving over um, over the last few years of Swift. Um, and we were just discussing you know, Swift on Linux. Uh, and as of two months ago, as of mid-January or so, um, Alex Blewett managed to finally merge a PR that he'd been working on for months before uh, to be able to build SourceKit on Linux by default. So without any kind of special command line invocations or um, uh, multiple passes of compilation or anything like that. And what what I find exceedingly interesting about this is that um, this was a very small PR. It was about 18 lines of, of additions only. Um, uh, and then there was another one that was that was just eight lines. Shortly after that, um, but it took so long to get merged because um, because there was no elegant way to do this. Um, if basically because of the build system that Swift uses, uh, Swift uses CMake as its build system, and SourceKit is part of the Swift project, but SourceKit depends on libdispatch, which is not available by default on Linux. And libdispatch has, also known as GCD, uh, Grand Central Dispatch, has this nice Swift overlay. So libdispatch depends on Swift. So you had this circular dependency here where sourceKit depended on libdispatch, which depended on Swift, but sourceKit and Swift are compiled as part of the same project. Um, So there was no elegant way to separate these projects without moving SourceKit entirely out of the Swift project. Um, And so this is why it took so long, it it took really over a year since Swift was open source for someone to be able to convince people on the Apple team that this 18 line change uh, was the best way to move forward with this, even though it was technically inelegant as far as CMake is concerned. Um, it was, it was elegant in its simplicity and, uh, in its, its, um, its ease of implementation. So finally, source is now available on Linux and all of these things that we've been talking about, whether it's sorcery, jazzy, uh, SwiftLint, Now it's possible to run all of those on Linux as well, which uh, I am hoping really enables kind of a whole new class of swift tooling that can run on, uh, the cloud or AWS or, Um, virtual machines running Linux or Docker instances, et cetera.
0: Very cool. Uh, What other things are coming down the road for SourceKit? Uh, Well, uh,
1: there's been quite a bit of talk about this Swift Syntax Structured Editing Library, um, which is a project of uh, David Farler of the Swift core team. And basically that's... um, that's sourcekit uh cranked up to 11. um you get it's it, it, rather than being an xpc service and uh and c interface to parts of the swift compiler it's uh it's a fully fledged um, c library that is also part of the swift project um, but gives you quite a few more editing capabilities as well so uh those would include uh, doing things like um, adding, the, doing refactoring, um, and, and do, having uh, the Swift compiler do most of the heavy lifting. Uh, so, say you want to add an argument to a function or remove an argument to a function, you want to, um, you know, refactor a class or rename a class. Uh, so it's it's really exposing quite a few more things. Um, and I'm really hoping that uh, rather than being a competitor to SourceKit, uh, that SourceKit can wrap everything that's being um, exposed via this uh, uh, this syntax structured editing library. Because um, the last thing that we want is at, at this part, at this point in Swift's lifecycle, to already be forking. Um, the, the ecosystem um, and to have many ways of doing the same thing you know, I'd, I'd really much rather um, all of this continue to be exposed via source kit uh, so that you can still run it out of process so that you can really still just talk to the one framework uh, but I guess time will tell and I'm hoping that, um, that the Swift Core team is going to be receptive to, to that line of thinking
0: very cool that's exciting stuff and for our listeners we talked with Casey Uhlenhuth uh, a few episodes back. It's about the Microsoft Roslyn compiler. And we got really jealous about what Microsoft <laughs> had done, because they've put a lot of support behind um, their compiler. And you know Visual Studio has been able to do basic refactorings for 10 years. And they've got a lot yeah. of tools around that. Do you see the Apple ecosystem catching up to that? I do,
1: absolutely. Um, and in many ways, it, it's been there all along. Um, putting Xcode aside because you know Xcode is closed source and it's kind of difficult to influence when Apple builds things into it but on top of SourceKit, uh, people have built refactoring tools already for Swift and, and have for a few years now um, there is uh, John Holdsworth refactorator uh, which is a standalone Mac app that um, allowed doing some refactoring for Swift Um, And now with this uh, Swift structured editing library, that that should enable quite a few more things. But in many ways, I feel like um, Apple didn't quite uh, market SourceKit quite enough. Because what Apple's done there is to give developers so many options and the tools that they need to to build better tooling themselves to build custom tooling in ways that you know it doesn't make sense for apple to to do uh, say just your company you or just your project you you need one small thing in code gen or in analysis or something like that um you can build it and and you this has been the case for for quite some time. So I look at projects like uh, yeah Microsoft's Roslyn compiler, or uh, one that really comes to mind is the uh, the Rust language server, which just the name itself really sh- I, I think is is a much better way to. To identify the purpose that it serves but it's super similar to SourceKit, where it provides all the IDE type functionality uh, and integration to the compiler so that you can build tooling around this um, so you know in some ways as, as much as SourceKit is a cool name it doesn't expose uh, all the power that's underneath and it doesn't incentivize I think um, third-party users or developers of Swift to really hook into its raw power uh, but it is there
0: Awesome. Anything else that we should cover? No, that's it. Awesome. You know, we all we now know everything we need to know
2: about SourceKit and SourceKit. So we're good. That's right. That's it. This episode is sponsored by Rails RemoteConf. Rails RemoteConf is a two-day completely virtual conference. So if travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. The conference is focused on people who want to keep up with the latest in Rails, such as databases, front-end frameworks, or Rails 5.1, and all the new stuff that came out with that. We'll have speakers from all over the Rails community to help you stay current in a Slack room so that you can connect with speakers and attendees in real time. Plus, I'll be there since I'm the MC. It also includes a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Early bird tickets are available for $150 until May 27th, and the call for proposals is open until May 13th. So come join us at railsremoteconf.com.
0: Awesome. Well, let's get to the picks. JP, what do you have for us?
1: Uh, this is this is definitely different. Um, but as we record this, it's International Women's Day. Uh, so I thought I'd share a few women in our industry who I, I deeply respect and... Um, who uh, I learned from all the time. Uh, and if you don't already follow them on Twitter, uh, these are, I think, um, gr- great picks. Um, so f- first off, um, I guess we actually mentioned her a few times on the show already today, but Erica Sadoon, um, a great co- contributor to the Swift language, the Swift evolution process. Um, she's done some amazing work and continues to do amazing work. Uh, so odds are that most of your listeners already follow her, but she's uh, Erica Sadun on Twitter. Um, and um, there's uh, two people who are very well-versed Um, in compiler design and theory and um, just some deeply technical things that I follow on Twitter and and learn from all the time. One is uh, Jessica Paquette. So she's barrel shifter on Twitter, Um, learn from her all the time. She uh, knows quite a bit about LLVM, um, graph theory, compiler theory, uh, complexity of algorithms. Um, Just a great person to learn from. So barrel shifter on Twitter. Um, my third pick is Maxime Chevalier, whose Twitter handle is love2code, two with the number two. Um, She's a PhD in computer design, um, learn from her all the time. And then finally, my last pick is, uh, is someone who I deeply respect, but also always makes me laugh. Uh, her name is Rebecca Slatkin, um, at Rebecca Slatkin on Twitter. Uh, great iOS developer, but also has a great sense of humor. Um, one of the funniest people in my Twitter feed at this point. Uh, so, so those are my four picks. Um, they're four ladies who I deeply respect, and uh, would encourage you to follow them if you're looking to liven up your Twitter feed.
0: Awesome. No, that's good uh, because it's today as we're recording it, it is international women's day <clears throat> i'll add a pick, which is partly self-promotion but partly along the lines of what you're talking about uh, so when we were in new york city we recorded uh, some episodes with the microsoft team mostly talking about mobile stuff but we saw casey uhlenhooth talk on the on, on the keynote we're like can we get her as a guest because she and did a great job, um, just had a keynote, and she's a program manager with the, the C Sharp team. She was a big part of the uh, the Roslyn compiler. So we just sat down and talked compilers, and we all had uh, Roslyn envy at the end of it. But she does a lot of cool stuff, and you can follow her on Twitter. And check out episode, I think it is 193, with Casey Ulland, with, um, who's doing really cool stuff with Microsoft. Awesome. Followed. All right. so. Cool. That's all the time we have. Uh, JP, thanks for coming out. We learned a ton. I'm glad to get a deep dive into, into SourceKit and all you that you can do with it. And I look forward to seeing what everyone comes up with next. Thank you so much
2: for having me, James. Always a pleasure. All right. Uh, for everyone else, we'll see you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CacheFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit cachefly.com com to learn more.